HR in the future has got to be innovative. They've got to be entrepreneurial. They've got to be creative. But most of all, they have to be talking about business impacts. Welcome to Second Opinions, a HealthStream podcast. I'm your host, Brad Weeks. Join me as I talk to some of the preeminent thought leaders and experts working in healthcare today. In these candid interviews, we're going to hear some alternative views. We're definitely going to challenge conventional wisdom, and we're going to get a little personal. But we are looking for second opinions. Join us. Today, we're talking with Elliot Clark, the chairman and CEO of Shared Expertise Media. Elliot oversees the management and the publication of HRO Today, a magazine focused on human resources leadership. In addition, Elliot serves as a senior fellow for the Wharton Center for HR Studies at the Wharton School of Finance and Commerce at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Elliot has a deep background in human resources across multiple industries, including healthcare. HealthStream first met Elliot at a conference where he was speaking about the link between human resources and business outcomes in hospitals and health systems. Welcome, Elliot, to the Second Opinions podcast. So give our audience a little bit more detail about your background and specifically how you became CEO of HRO Today magazine, as well as shared expertise. I chose the, to go into the business world, um, started my career in executive search, um, primarily in the healthcare and life sciences industry. The company that uh, I worked for, uh, a second one I worked for, uh, became known as Conexa which uh, is a, a fairly well-known brand in the HR space, provider of software and outsourcing services. I left Conexa uh, in 2007 and got the opportunity to, to join HRO Today, um, which is the, the lead publication of shared expertise. And, and really over the, the intervening 10 years now that I've been doing this, uh, in the media, we, we have uh, the fun opportunity to sort of observe the world around us. And that includes... Uh, being able to do some pretty deep research into HR best practices. So what makes HRO today different in your mind? First of all, we cater to a very, very senior audience. One of the things that's unique about us is we don't talk about why. By the time you get to the first or second level of human resources, you ought to know why you need to do something. Why do you need to be diverse? Why do you need to to uh, do engagement surveys? We don't, we don't talk about why so much. We talk about how. We cover the strategy, but we actually get into sort of the hard nose. This is how you have to do your business um, versus giving you one more set of articles about uh, the noble causes that you need to undertake. We've seen you present and speak about the link between human resources and business outcomes in hospitals and health systems. And you've actually been a part of some really interesting research that has examined that link in, in quite a bit of detail. What can you tell us that you learned through that research about how HR can impact the bottom line? Probably eight years ago, we began doing research on the connection between HR and business outcomes. And we actually published a pretty significant study about five years ago that got picked up by a number of mass media publications called Counting Success. And in that study, we we were able to show the linkage between analytics and better performance. Don't know whether better HR practices made companies perform better, but we knew that ones who knew their numbers performed better than those that did not. About 
two to three years ago, we were approached by a uh, one of the providers in the, the healthcare space and said, could you tell us, you know, how HR functions in the healthcare world? Really what this company was concerned about. They were looking at the market, trying to decide, was this a, a good place to invest time, effort, and, and uh, you know, financial resources? What they were worried about was, is HR so under-invested in the healthcare industry that they really weren't going to have the opportunity to, to have a business there? Guess what we discovered? That yes, <laughs> HR is woefully underinvested. The question that, that that troubled our research staff is, how do we actually build a case that the CEO and CFO could look at and say, "Wow, we need to invest more in HR." And we came right back to this idea of connecting it to business outcomes. So in the first study, we showed how the inability to fill jobs impacted vacancy rates. If you've got 500 beds in a hospital, but on any given day, you might only be able to fill 400 because you don't have the staff available to maintain your patient to nurse ratios, for example, uh, that can endanger your JCO accreditations and uh, HCAPs and, and all those other uh, regulatory and accreditation bodies that you've got to deal with. That's going to hurt your business. So basically, you're paying for the rent, the electricity, the heating for 100 beds that you can't fill because you just don't have enough people in the building. And we found that HR did not have the not only the investment in, in enough recruiters, they didn't have very good tools. They were they were behind the, the commercial world. And by the way, this was not about whether they were for-profit or not-for-profit. This was about being in healthcare. There were for-profit systems that were also underinvested in HR. I did a, a presentation yesterday. One of the, the things that we pointed out is that, that the spend in the healthcare industry for HR um, overall is less than 1% of annual budget. So they actually spend more in most healthcare systems on maintenance than they do on people. That's pretty. That's pretty amazing to think about. <laughs> yeah, you know. So you know, your your Drano budget is might be bigger than your HR budget. What we found in HR and the ER is that there was a significant underinvestment, and this was across the board. We also found that that the lack of investment impacted the ability of these um, organizations to also uh, engage in what I'm going to call alternative delivery uh, methods. So, for example, wellness and preventative care programming. If you can't fill your acute care beds, you may not have the time and, and the oomph to go out there and build the staff for wellness professionals. That's a very profitable business, but a significant percentage of our respondents could not see their way clear to even launching a program like that because they just couldn't recruit the people. What do you think are some of the most important metrics that human resources leaders ought to be monitoring so that they can make sure that they're on track? I look at uh, healthcare HR as almost like a time capsule. Uh, because they've been denied the CapEx expenditure to get more modern tools, if you go into the most commercial HR departments, they have a wide variety of measurement and analytic uh, tools at their disposal through applicant tracking solutions, through planning tools that, that may not be available in, in the healthcare space. 
So they really need to focus on the big two or three. One is obviously time to fill. Time to fill is increasing in the United States. We have a perfect storm. We have an aging population. Through the Affordable Care Act, we added several million benefit recipients. We have an aging workforce. So the educational systems in the United States are not keeping up with the retirements and increased demand. So you've got a bigger and bigger gap. So time to fill has been stretching out across the country. In addition, everyone measures your cost per hire. And, you know, so time to fill, cost per hire, those kinds of things are the big ones. Here's the one that no one is covering that I have been on my soapbox about for the past year, which is the cost of not hiring. So just think about that for a moment. So if you're a hospital with a 10% vacancy rate, and if you go back, you know, to 2001, I think it was an uh, American Nursing Association poll, uh, how many hospitals had more than 10% open vacancy? Well, the answer was 4.8%. Same survey, a few years later, 32.9%. If you have 500 nurses, that's 50 shifts a week or 200 shifts a month that are not covered. Now, you might not have enough patients through the course of a year, but if you covered half of them and had those beds filled, 100 more bed nights a month or 1,200 a year, what would that mean for the revenue of the hospital? No one's looking at the cost of not hiring. That's interesting. You don't hear that, that metric mentioned really at all, in my experience. You're right. It's, it's all about cost of hire, but looking at the cost of not hire is, is probably a pretty new concept for quite a bit of our listeners. And, and here's, here's the point. If you think of it that way, you automatically transform the concept of HR as an expense to HR as an investment. And crossing that Rubicon mentally makes all the difference in the world. A lot of organizations in healthcare view human resources as a cost center. Is there a different way to manage that? Well, I, I think, first of all, HR people, as a general rule, need to talk the language of business. So you've got to be able to talk about business impacts, cost of not hiring. You've got to look at workforce as an investment in the future, an investment in better outcomes, an investment in better qualifications and ratings, et cetera. And yet there's still uh, an inability to do that. You've written uh, about hospitals that have a, quote, profitability focus as compared to those that do not. And can, can you first tell us what it means to have a profitability focus? How do you define that? We, we ask the question, what's more important, revenue generation or expense reduction? And in hospitals that had a, quote, unquote, profitability focus, 47% of them said it's really about driving revenue. About 35% said no cost reduction is more important. When you go into the ones that had what we called no profitability focus, that group actually only about 20% of them said revenue generation was important as expense reduction. 60% said they were roughly the same. And 20% said they spent more time on, on expenses. What we discovered is that in that group that was no profitability focus, there was, there, there was involved in an endless circle of cost cutting an endless cycle of downward metrics. Inside that group, we would have to describe the answer to almost every question as an expression of chaos. 
there was, you know, this constant focus on trying to make the numbers or, or make it work based on cutting, cutting, cutting. They're almost lost when you start asking them about investment, about driving revenue. They're not, they're, they're not focused on it. 20% of the time they think about it. They spend much more of their time on expense, cutting, etc. And as a result, they're really not thinking proactively. That's really the, the word that I want to focus on. Hospitals that are always in an expense cutting mode are not proactive, they're reactive. They're not investing for the future. It's that difference in, in mentality between proactive and reactive that really distinguishes the herd. What makes them proactive? Well, they recognize that increasing occupancy increases revenue, and the, the difference is demonstrable. And, and, and that's self-evident. So if you go into the profitability-focused hospitals, you say, does occupancy increase revenue? 80% of them agree. But if you go into the, the quote-unquote no-profitability focus, less than 65% agree. We ask them, uh, do they have a formal model for evaluating the impact of census? 48% of the, the profitability-focused hospitals said, yes, we have a formal model for looking at the, the, the cost and business impacts of census. Of the, the ones who had no profitability uh, model, it was actually, you know, uh, significantly higher. Okay, they had none. They, they actually, 31.2% uh, of all hospitals said no. 20% said they didn't even know. There's a, an underinvestment compared to um, the, uh, the technology. But more importantly, when they had technology, they weren't using it. So, for example, your HIRS system, we asked about the capabilities and what they were using it for. So things like timesheet management, profitability-focused hospitals use it 98.1% of the time. No profitability-focus uses it 72.7% of the time. So that means that 27.3% don't use something they've already paid for. Personnel tracking, employee benefit management. You'd think that's pretty basic to HRIS systems. Profitability-focused hospital, running through HRIS, 78.8% of the time. No profitability, 45.5%. So a lot of them don't have tools. Those that have tools don't use them. They're just running around with their hair on fire, I guess. I think, unfortunately, a lot of our listeners can relate to that from, uh, from what we hear. I'm sure we've all heard or read the statistics that the industry is facing a dire shortage of nurses that's staring us right in the face in the next 10 to 15 years. Do you believe that there is a talent shortage in healthcare? If there is, how should the industry respond? Well, you know, the problem with healthcare is we spend a lot of money in the wrong places. I've long been an advocate for things like tort reform. Way too much money is spent on defensive medicine, on um, malpractice insurance, and on uh, legal fees. But that, that being said, the talent shortage is absolutely true. Right? I, I said at the, at the top of the show that, that we have a perfect storm. And we can bring in there are, you know, high-quality foreign graduates, but we've gone to a quota-based system for immigration, which has made matters worse. So if you are the 20,000th person coming from Spain or, or Mexico or, 
or Russia, and you happen to have a, a degree in medicine or dentistry or nursing, you're, you're, you may be boxed out because it's a lottery-based system. It used to be the people with advanced degrees or degrees that were attracted to the U.S. economy were, were brought in. Um, that was changed about 15 years ago to this quota-based system. It has actually depleting American talent, which we always replenished through, through immigration. Um, I also uh, think that, that you've just got to accept the fact and invest in the fact that you are in a competitive talent market. I think many firms know it. They're frustrated by it. There's a talent shortage for web-based software engineers. And you don't hear Google complaining about it. You don't hear Yahoo or Autodesk or Adobe. They essentially have come to accept it, and they've, they've gotten very competitive in their approach to do it. Now, they have more financial resources. It's hard to compare a hospital system to Google. But once again, if you look at this as an investment, as Google does, it gives you a different view of of where you're spending money than if you look at it as an expense as most hospital systems do you've got to get more competitive and you've got to recognize that if there's one nurse standing in the middle of the of the block they can go to your hospital on the corner or the hospital in the next corner your job as the town acquisition professional is to make sure you get that nurse that physician that allied health professional in your building and deprive your competitor of the opportunity to get that talent. It's gotten that fierce. So I think that, that everyone has to recognize the competitive world in which they live. What lessons can human resources leadership in healthcare take from other industries? Well, you know, we've touched on a few of them, Brad. The, the, the principally, um, you've got a, the, the, the big shift in HR. If you go back, when I studied HR on stone tablets back in the day, um, the, uh, the, the HR folks were seen as administrative risk managers. They were keeping personnel records. They were dealing with grievances, but fundamentally weren't really contributing to driving business strategy. That has changed in the last 20 years and continues to accelerate. And what we've seen is that, that we've seen a lot of chief HR officers by the way, come from, not from the world of HR, but from areas outside of necessarily traditional HR uh, in terms of their educational experience. But the percentage that came out of what I'll call measurement-driven professions, engineering, finance, et cetera, has risen markedly. And I think part of the reason is that HR leaders need to be able to speak the language of business. A very good friend who's the head of HR for one of the world's largest manufacturing firms, and he said to me, that if you're in an executive committee meeting and you can tell in that meeting who's the CFO, who's the head of HR, who's the head of sales, who's the head of marketing and, and communications, then no one's doing their job right. Because they shouldn't advocate for their viewpoint. They should only be talking about what's good for the business and how something will impact the business. And I think there's a very important inspirational lesson there. The HR people need to be seen not necessarily as you know, solely the advocate for the employees. They need to be able to articulate why programs for the employees drive better business outcomes. I think that's really the key. That's really the inspiration from the commercial world that HR people need to get. That, that at one point in the commercial world, and I'm only going back 15 years, 
the the leaders of HR were fighting for some of the very tools, the HRS systems, the applicant tracking systems, the analytical, the metrics analytical platforms that the, the healthcare industry has yet to invest in. And what they found is when they did make that investment, it paid off. In an industry that has, a, in, in certain parts of the country, 25% turnover, if you can make that turnover drop to 18%, how much money does that organization save on new recruitment costs? So everyone counts the outward spend. What are we spending that we're sending outside the door? We're not doing a good job in HR talking about opportunity cost. So in your opinion, Elliot, how must human resources leadership in healthcare respond or prepare themselves to be successful in the years ahead? In the years ahead, they they first of all got to find good leadership below them. Um, people who can be more and and you know I I, I have said many shocking things in my career. One of them is that there was a whole generation of HR people that literally almost biblically had to go away. They had to wander in the desert until a new generation emerged. Because when, when I learned about HR at Wharton back in the, the 1980s, it was taught as a risk aversion and risk management, risk avoidance and risk management profession. I, I think that, that you know, people who are risk averse go into risk avoidance businesses. And I see some of the, the new generation of HR people coming up are much more entrepreneurial in their approach. They're much more willing to experiment. And I think it's important for HR leaders today to recognize that that model is what you need. You need people who can go out as business partners to the various units of the hospital and be able to give them good advice on, on business strategy as well as manage day-to-day HR issues that may arise. For example, I, I know the, the the head of HR, one of the largest hospital systems in New England, and he, uh, this person's had a very storied career. One of the things that, that they recognize is the future of medicine, at least in the United States, and in terms of, of profitability, is going to be around preventative and wellness programming, more so than acute care particularly with an aging population, people over 65 are going to have three times as many hospital days as people under 65. You get 75, it's four times as many. So being able to go and say, hey, if we can build a wellness program, it will make our acute care better. It will help make the community healthier and it's more profitable. So being able to go and have that kind of conversation with a CEO and a CFO, very different than playing the the game of constantly trying to stop up leaks in a system that's chaotic. That's really where it needs to go. In the future, you've got to be able to look at, here's the demographic, here's the business model. What can HR do to have a better impact on the business through better programming? The, the HR in the future has got to be innovative. They've got to be entrepreneurial. They've got to be creative. But most of all, they have to be talking about business impacts. Well, Elliot, you have a tremendous amount of experience uh, and just a vast amount of insight and intelligence into human resources, but more globally into business. And we can't thank you enough just for not only joining us here on Second Opinions, but also more importantly, um, what you're doing to share your insight with leaders across the country, because it's really making a difference. Well, thank you. It's been fun. I enjoyed the opportunity to, to, to join you today and look forward to, to doing it again at some point in the future. 
Thank you for listening. You can learn more about what we've talked about today by visiting our website at healthstream.com slash podcast. For more Second Opinions, follow us on Facebook and Twitter or subscribe on our website.